Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It is our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for people and the gospel, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. The Christian faith can be difficult to understand at times. As believers begin to think deeper about our faith, questions may begin to arise. Questions are a good thing. They're indications that a person is loving God with all their mind. This series of sermons entitled Questions Christians Ask are responses to some questions I have periodically received. I pray these sermons will stir your thoughts and drive you closer to God. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Philippians 2 this morning. So if you'd look in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at the question about Jesus emptying himself. What, what does that mean? And so let's look in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read through 11. And here is what Paul wrote about this morning. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray this morning. God, as we consider the incarnation of Jesus, it is, it is a mystery. It is, it is difficult to grasp Jesus being fully God and fully man. But I pray this morning we would understand how important it is and maybe help get our minds wrapped around that a little bit so that we understand what an amazing sacrifice it was that Jesus came and gave himself for us. I pray we learn a little bit about that this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So in the early 300s AD, given your church history lesson this morning, in early 300s AD, there was a priest in Libya by the name of Arius. And Arius, while he was preaching on the Trinity, made the declaration and continued to do so that Since Jesus was the only begotten Son, that meant there was a time when Jesus was not. That that the second person of the Trinity did not eternally exist, but there was a time where he did not exist and then came into being. That was Arius' contention. And he, he preached that, and that teaching began to take hold, and it traveled throughout the area. But in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a bishop by the name, strangely enough, of Alexander. Alexander of Alexandria. I, I mean, I don't know. But anyway, that, so that is who was there. And he had a chief deacon by the name of Athanasius. 
And Athanasius and Arius are the two main people in this controversy. But, but Alexander and Athanasius began to fight against, teach against, battle against the heresy that Arius was teaching. And they said that Jesus wasn't a little bit like God, but he was of the exact same substance that God was. Whatever God was, Jesus was as well, completely and fully. And they understood that this was important because salvation was at stake. If someone placed their faith in a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture, if they hold to something that the Scripture does not hold to, then salvation is at stake. And so they, they fought. And so Athanasius would, would teach that God was fully God and fully human. And Arius preached that Christ was not eternally existent, that he was a little bit less than what God was. And this began to spread everywhere. A historian at this time said this, Bishop was contending against Bishop, and the people were contending against one another like swarms of gnats fighting in the air. It was everywhere. And Emperor Constantine, who, who had really legalized the Christianity in an attempt to unify the people, wasn't so much concerned about the theological implications, but was concerned about the fighting that was going on amongst God's people and said to the bishops that division in the church is worse than war. And so he called a council of bishops and he invited 1,800 bishops to come to Nicaea. Only 300 actually came and they, they came to debate this issue between Athanasius and Arius. And the church uh, got together and they began to argue and they began to, to preach and they began to read the scripture and pray and debate until they nailed down what Scripture had said. Now, these, are, these men did not decide a new doctrine. That's, that's the accusation someplace on them. But they said, what Scripture says is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. That Jesus possessed all the Godhood. Whatever God had that's what Jesus says. Whatever God is, that's what Jesus is. They're the same substance. And so they, they nailed down essentially Athanasius' teaching and said Arius was a heretic. They exiled him and made it a capital punishment, a capital punishment to possess his writings. The dual nature of Christ has been debated and fought for, for a long, long time. What does it mean to Jesus be God and man? How much God was he? How much human was he? The very first church council, the Council of Nicaea, that was held in 325 that we're just talking about, that's what they nailed down. And it's an important issue. It's an important issue because, like I said, salvation is at stake. Who is Jesus in his nature? And what does that mean? And people have always had questions about this because it's a mystery. Was Jesus fully God or was there something? Did, did he have to get rid of some of his godness to be a human? Or if he's fully God, then he couldn't be really human because he couldn't be all human because of his godness would erase some of that. And we contend he was 100% fully God and 100% fully human. He must be. He had to have been. So specifically, I received a question that said something like this. How much of being an all-knowing God did Jesus lay aside when he became man? And it continued and said, So if Jesus was tempted to be discouraged when things went contrary to his plans, 
would we surmise that becoming a man, he had to lay aside his power to be all-knowing. And, and I take this question to, to talk about how much, how much God was Jesus and how much human was Jesus and how do these two natures work together. And I'm going to attempt to respond to that today and, and, and anticipate other questions about the dual nature of Christ. And I want to talk about our passage today and begin with two, talking about two different words just real briefly. And so this is... Uh, just kind of an introduction to, to what we're talking about. He, he says in, in verse 6 and in verse 7, Paul uses the word form. He says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not record, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He uses the word form twice, and that word form is translated from the Greek word Morphe, you might hear the word morph, you know, metamorphosis, the change. Um, that's, that's really not what the essence of the word is here, but you hear that morph in that. The Greeks use this word to talk about the inner, essential, abiding nature of a person. What does it mean, what that person is at their core? If you watch the Super Bowl today, you might be watching a player who did a great play, and you might say, boy, that player has great form, right? And you're not talking about the shape of the player or what the player looks like. You are really, what you're really saying is that person kind of embodies, he is a good player. It is inbreded in him. He is, it's, it's his nature, so to speak. And that nature, what's inside of him is on display externally, but it is what's inside of him. You kind of see the, the, the agility and, and all the, the natural athletic ability this person has. That's what it's speaking about. It's who that person is in his nature, and then it's expressed outwardly. By, by saying here that Jesus was in the form of God, he is emphatically and without question saying that Jesus Christ, in his nature, at his core, was fully God. He was in the form of God. He's not saying he was kind of shaped like God. He's saying in his nature, he is God. Whatever God was, Jesus was. He possesses deity. Deity in, in, in his essence is who Jesus is. And that deity, he says, took on the form of a slave. That he, this, the, the all sovereign, almighty God at his core became a servant. He came to serve. That's what it says in Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he is talking about. That's the word form in verse 6 and 7. That's one of the words. But the other word is found in verse 8. The New American Standard, it says, but being found in appearance as a man, or the King James Version, it would say, being found in fashion as a man. Um, the word appearance or fashion or whatever your translation might have there, it, it's from the Greek word schema, just a different word, and it points to the external fleeting appearance of a person. Some of you might have an apple tree in your backyard. We, we, have, like a, we have an apple tree. I, I don't take as good care of it as I should, but if you take good care of it, this apple tree, it looks a certain way, right? First of all, it, it has the form of an apple tree. That is to say, it has certain elements that all apple trees have. It's kind of got a short, stocky trunk, probably. It might have scaly bark. It has maybe gnarled branches, depending upon the apple. I know, it, it, but there's certain ways the branches look, the certain way the bark looks. You can kind of look at it, and you know this is the apple tree, but it's not the outside. It's because at its core, it is an apple tree, right? Inside, it's an apple tree, so it kind of looks like that. And you can look at it and say, this is an apple tree. That's the form of an apple tree. But the fashion of an apple tree changes. 
Right now, it's bare, but it might be budding. And so it'll start to bud, and then pretty soon, some, some blossoms will pop out. And then the tree will be covered with blossoms. And then the fruit will start to begin to produce from that. And then that fruit will get bigger, and it'll change color. And then eventually, it'll be picked clean, either by you or the birds. But it'll be picked clean. And then the leaves will begin to fall off, and then it'll be devoid of life again. That is the fashion of an apple tree. That's what happens with an apple tree. It, is, it doesn't mean it's less of an apple tree because it changes what it looks like on the outside. There is a, there is a, a way the apple tree is, and there's a way the apple tree looks. And it looks that way because it is an apple tree. You cannot have an apple tree if the form is not an apple tree, and you can't have an apple tree if the fashion isn't the apple tree or the appearance of an apple tree. Now, this is similar, not exactly, but it's similar to what Paul is saying. Jesus, in his very essence, was God. At his core, he was deity, and that did not and could not change. But Jesus had another nature, And when you looked at him, his appearance was that of a man. And his appearance looked like a man because he was a man. He was human. And that doesn't mean he simply looked that way. It was he was completely and wholly human. He experienced birth. He experienced life. And all that life is, that common human element that we we call life, and then he died, just like every human who, will, who have been born and live and have or will die. Jesus experienced all that. And the dual nature of Christ then is what I'm trying to say is that he was both fully and he was both fully, and that's essential to understand for salvation. Because if he is less than God, if there is some aspect of God that we can say he wasn't, then he could not be the Savior who took on all the sins of the world. That had to be God who, who did that. No human could do that. He, could, he would not have been perfect. He would not have been the perfect God-man, the, the mediator between God and man. He had to be fully God. But if we take away some of his humanity, then he couldn't be the savior of humanity. If he was only half human, how many of you are half human, right? We are all 100% human, right? He could only save what he was, so he had to be 100% human. So we need to understand Jesus as fully God and fully man to understand the salvation that's revealed to us through the word. This is not because we have this idea, and it's not even because in 325 AD, Athanasius out-argued Arius. You know, it wasn't even about arguing. It is that he, they looked in Scripture and said, this is what God has revealed to us about his Son. And that's why we believe it. So with that in mind, then we have the question at hand. And here's the the question, of what did Jesus empty himself? What was it that Jesus emptied himself of? I know, that's ending a sentence with a preposition, so sorry about that. But if if Jesus' divinity can't be diminished, and his humanity cannot be diminished, then what did Jesus empty himself? And in fact, how could someone who was fully God and then add humanity lead to subtraction? How does adding humanity lead to emptying? Right? If I take, I know if I take a, a glass of water and I start pouring water in, it fills up, and it empties itself of air, I get that, but then there's no air, there's only water. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't pour in humanity and his divinity left, he was both. So how does adding lead to subtraction? I'll uh, see if I can give you a little example that might teach us about that. Um, 
let's say one day you wanna go and uh, take a test drive in a luxury car. You, you're driving down and you see a nice, I don't know, whatever the nicest car you can think of, right? Maybe a Cadillac dealership, and you say, okay, I'm going to take a drive in this Cadillac. You get in the car. It's just recently snowed, so you're driving down the road, and, you, and, and the mag chloride's on the road, and it kind of gets up on this luxury car, so you, you've got some mag chloride on it. And then you driving by McDonald's, and you say, you know what? I'm just going to stop and get some fries. So you get some fries, and you're carelessly eating the fries, and they're falling in the seat between the seat and the console. I know you guys never do that. I mean, I do, but you guys never do that. And, and so you're adding some fries there. And then you're driving down the road and to the right, there's a field off to the right and you say, I wonder how this thing does donuts. So you go out into the field and for the next 20 minutes, you're just doing donuts in this muddy field, right? And you are caking this Cadillac with mud. It is just all over from top to bottom. It is just covered in mud, right? And meanwhile, while you're doing the donuts, the fries are going everywhere in the car. You go back to the dealership and you throw them the keys. And you say, thanks. Now, you have added mag chloride, you have added fries, and you have added mud to this car, right? You have added a lot to it. But the salesman's going to say, what did you do to my car? And you, 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 you could say to him, I've taken away nothing from your car. Your car is still a, a, a brand new Cadillac, right? I've just added some mag chloride and some fries and some mud caked it full of mud it is still a cadillac it is still the car that you took out but after your first last and only test drive with that car dealer he realizes that that is the, the glory of that car has been disguised Someone driving by and seeing it would say, that is not the car that I want to have. It's not as obvious as before. Now, in the same way, but, I don't know, gloriously more mysteriously, right? So much more than that is what Jesus did. He didn't cease being God, but the human nature disguised his glory. Like the mud disguised the glory of the new car, the humanity of Jesus disguised his glory. So when you looked at him, you didn't see the glory of God that makes people fall on the ground. In fact, the scripture says when you looked at him, it says in Isaiah, Isaiah that, that people weren't, wasn't drawn to him. He, he didn't apparently look like much. So as you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus' humanity make it really hard to see his divinity. And even, we even read times where he becomes hungry or tired and sleeps or becomes angry and, and turns over tables or, or is beaten and bleeds and dies um, just like a human would. He doesn't know about certain events. Tell us when the end's coming. He says, I don't know. Father knows, but I don't know. He knows about some. He doesn't know about others. He's limited in his humanity, but he can do miraculous things. It's the mud disguising his glory. It doesn't mean he ceased being glorious. He was glorious. It just couldn't be seen. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that Jesus did, in fact, empty himself. As he added another nature, as he added humanity, he emptied himself. And so what does that mean? How, how, what did he, of what did he empty himself? And first, I want you to see that he emptied himself of heavenly riches. He emptied himself of heavenly riches. Look in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 
He was king of creation in eternity past. He had all that he ever needed. He was, he was quite content in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They existed in eternity past and, and needed nothing. He was Lord over all things. He created all the world. He spoke and life sprang into existence. And, and he was spiritually rich, you might say. Kind of how Paul's talking about it. But when he came and took on human nature, and when he died on the cross, he took our spiritual debt and became poor. The innocent Lamb of God, the Son of God who had never sinned, took our sin debt, and he became poor, and we gained his spiritual riches. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall onto him. Our iniquity, our sin fell upon Jesus and he became the spiritually poor. We are spiritually poor, but he became poor for us. So much so it says in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He, wasn't, he didn't take an actual sheet of paper that showed the debt we owed God and nailed it to a cross. That, that certificate of debt was Jesus Christ. He became a spiritual pauper, the one who was the righteousness of God, who had never sinned, couldn't even have sin come close. He became sin so that we could become rich. When he took on human nature and died for our sins, he emptied himself of heavenly riches. He also emptied himself of heavenly glory. Not only the heavenly riches, but the heavenly glory. John 17, 4 and 5, look what it says. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. He's talking to his father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had, past tense, I had with you before the world was. In eternity past, Jesus had inexpressible, unimaginable glory. You could, you, a person could not... Uh, Take it in. The heavens, it says, declare the glory of God is what the scripture says. And so you look at the universe. They say the universe is ever expanding. We look up at the night sky and see a gazillion stars that are just amazing. And when we start thinking about how far away these, these lights are and how far it has to travel for us to see them and how much is out there that we can't see with the human eye. And every time they put a telescope that's more powerful and looks further out, we are more and more amazed about, about, about this creation. And, and it's amazing because that is speaking the glory of God. And it's, it's unimaginable. We can't get our mind around it. It is, it is huge. That's the glory that he's talking about. It is it, Got the glory that Jesus had was amazing. And Isaiah, Isaiah got a glimpse of it in chapter 6. He, in chapter 6, he has a vision. He's standing at the temple. And the train of the Lord, it says, filled the temple. And, and angels that were called seraphim, they came down and they started shouting out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. And the foundation of the temple was shaking, and smoke began to fill the temple. And the New Testament says in John 12, 41, it says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. That incredible glory, the radiance and power that was displayed simply because he was present 
there that Isaiah saw. Jesus emptied himself of that glory by putting on the mud of humanity. And we get a peak of that glory in the New Testament. We, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and he kind of peels back just a little bit of that, that veil of flesh. And he peels it back, and it says in Matthew 17, 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, to them, talking with him. And it says, after this, there was a bright cloud that covered everything, and a voice from heaven. The Father said, this is my beloved Son. It was an amazing thing. It's like the, the back fender of the Cadillac was kind of wiped clean of the mud, and you could kind of see the glory of who he really was for just a second. That glory he has laid aside. He emptied himself of heavenly riches. He emptied himself of heavenly glory. And I think one thing that's really important we see that, that helps us understand maybe this question is he, 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 lay, he emptied himself of his independent use of authority. He, he emptied himself of his independent use of authority. Hebrews 5.8 says this, although he was a son, and that meant he had the authority that the Father gave him. It says he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Before he walked on this earth, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, he had all authority. He was the creative agent in creation, Scripture tells us in Colossians and Hebrews and other places. That means Jesus spoke and everything obeyed. He spoke and there was light before there were things that gave light. He spoke and, and the heavens and earth were separated to create the space between here and, and the atmosphere. And he, and he spoke and land and water separated. And then he spoke and, and the land became full of, of animals and the, the water became full of animals and and the air became full of animals. And at the very end, he spoke and humanity sprang into existence simply because he spoke and it happened. He had all authority, but when he walked on this earth, he laid aside that authority. He had it. He possessed it, but he submitted it to the will of the Father and said, I will not use this until the Father tells me to use it. It says in John 5.30 that he sought after the Father's will. I can do nothing on my own initiative. And, and that's just not the human part of him. That is the deity part of him. He laid aside his authority and said, I'm going to do nothing unless the Father tells me. He says, I, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And just before that, in John 5, 19, he said, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself and lets it something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. So if it was the Father's will for the Son to, to heal a blind man, he would heal a blind man, touch him, and he could see. If it was the Father's will that he doesn't know something, then he could say, I don't know when the end's coming. And he meant he did not know when the end is coming. It is whatever the Father wanted. So he experienced this world just like we did. Just like we do. He didn't walk through life knowing what everyone would do and what everyone would say unless the Father let him do that. And then he could access that, that part of his deity. But he laid aside his independent use of authority. 
emptied himself of heavenly riches, of heavenly glory, of his independent use of authority, and he also laid aside his relationship with the law. His relationship with the law. This is important to our salvation, I believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, the poor and the riches kind of speak again, but this is talking about the guilt. Jesus was the lawgiver. I mean, as God, he gave the law. That means he wasn't bound by the law as, as the way God's economy works. The one who gives the law is, is above it. He, it was righteous because he was righteous. It reflected him and his standards and what he desired. And when he came in human flesh, he not stopped being the lawgiver and came under the law and lived it perfectly. The only one who ever could. But when he lived perfectly, he had no guilt. He had no sin. But on the cross, he took our sin and our guilt and then he became, he, that, he, he became the guilty one. And we became his righteousness. So all of our law breaking and all the breaking of God's perfect moral law, every wrong thought and every wrong word and every wrong deed, every act of rebellion, every defiance, every one of our sins, Jesus, the lawgiver, the perfect son of God, took that and became guilty of that sin in our stead. And he did that so that he could take that sin from us and inject his righteousness into us. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that's what he meant. So what did Jesus empty himself, empty of himself? He didn't become less God. He didn't take away some of his deity. He possessed all his deity. He didn't become less human. He possessed all his humanity. But he voluntarily became poor so that we could become rich. He disguised his glory so that we would be glorified. He submitted himself to the Father so that we could see what it's like to see someone live a life of submission. And he loved us so much he became guilty of our sin under the law so that we could be seen as innocent. And so in the relation to the question today, was Jesus tempted to be discouraged when things were going contrary to what was planned? Let me just take a quick poll here, and, and you can answer in your head if you want. How many of you ever been discouraged when your plans did not go according to the way you wanted them to? Anyone ever been discouraged by that? Yeah, right? I mean, that is the human experience in a fallen world. Right? We have plans and we want to see things go this way and they don't go that way and it's frustrating. And Jesus was 100% fully human. Do you think he got frustrated? I would think he does. I think we can say being 100% human, he got frustrated. I think when we see him looking over the cities, where he looks over and he and he says, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. There's a frustration. He says, I've come, and I've displayed my power to you, and you won't believe. I think that's frustration. I think he looks over the city, and he sees the people scattered without, uh, like, like people, with, uh, like sheep without a shepherd, and, it's, and there's a level of frustration there and brokenheartedness that it's not going the way he wants it to go. And so, yes, since he was fully human and not less than 100% human, I'm sure he got discouraged. And I, yes, there are times he allowed him to see the future, and he knew that that was coming. He told them, look, there's three days, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be taken from you. He knew that was happening. 
But there was other things he didn't know. And so he, I think he had the full human experience. He experienced our weaknesses. The scripture says he, he was tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin, he experienced what it's like to be a human. And he didn't lay aside any of his deity. He voluntarily gave up his independent use of that authority whenever he wanted. When Jesus was on this earth, he was all-knowing, I believe, but did not use that. And I don't know how that works. But if we take away his all-knowingness, then he's not God. And he can't be less. He can't be less than 100%. So he voluntarily limited himself and voluntarily placed that authority under the Father so that he could do what the Father wanted. So as we... As we th- think about that i want to i want to really finish today and see if i can get done relatively quick here about two two more items and that is what are the results of jesus emptying himself and what are the lessons for us and the first what were the results of jesus emptying himself i think he continues in verse 9 through 11 and look what it says in 9 for 11 for this reason also and that we should stop for a minute there and realize when he says, for this reason, he's talking about what he just said. That Jesus emptied himself and became a servant to serve others. The, the almighty sovereign Lord became a servant to others. And he became in appearance as a man, humbled himself to, to a death on the cross. For that reason... It says, God, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul connects this ultimate glorification of Jesus to his humiliation that Jesus had to be humbled and, and go through the humbling process to death so that he could be glorified. And it teaches us about being humbled in order to be glorified as well. The way this is written, he doesn't say death on the cross. It says even death on a cross. He's talking about the humiliating death of crucifixion. It was a torturous way of death. It was a death of criminals. It was meant to to bring shame and disgust to people. So when people saw somebody crucified, it would prevent them from ever doing anything like what they did. It was meant to degrade a person and it was meant to kill someone as slowly and as painfully as follows. And even in the Old Testament, it says the one who is hung on a tree is cursed. And so it shows the manner of humiliating death. And it says he came and did that, becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross in verse 8. And it's for that reason that God glorified him. He became humiliated by becoming his creation, allowing that creation to nail him to a cross and kill him so that he could be glorified. The God, and, and because of that, God has given him a name, right? The name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every person who has ever lived, every person who is living now, every person who will live at one day will kneel down and agree with the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. Everyone, every created thing is going to proclaim this truth. Because he humbled himself God will exalt him. And so the emptying of Jesus results in the, in the 
glorification, like even more glory, the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father. So what does this all mean? How do we, what do we walk away with today? Well, I think we look back in verses 1 through 5 of what Paul is trying to convey to them. Because he is trying to convey to them at the beginning what we have just covered. Um, and the argument for what he says in 1 through 5 is what we just covered is what I'm trying to say. He's telling the church that there is a standard of conduct of God's people. That God's people should be living in a certain way. And it's through this instruction, he points to Christ as an example, and he says to them that believers should have the mind of Christ. And so what are the lessons from us? And I just got real three brief things, and you could investigate them even further. But Paul teaches them first in verses 1 through 2. We're going back up to the top of the chapter. 1 through 2, unity in the church is essential. Unity in the church is essential. Look what it says. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. These if statements in verses 1 could be understood as since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, and since there is a consolation or encouragement of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, this church encouraged one another, they loved each other, they had fellowship with one another. This church in Philippi was a great church, and we know that if we've ever read Philippians. Paul loved this church, and Paul says, look, this is great stuff, but what would give me incredible joy. You have all this, you have love and fellowship and, the, and, and you, you have a, a love and fellowship and you encourage one another. What would give Paul, he says, great, great joy is that they have unity. And he calls them the unity. Unity in the way they think, unity in their love for one another, unity in the spirit, and unity of purpose. One person paraphrased that by saying, loving each other and agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, working together with one heart and mind and purpose. Unity in the church doesn't happen by accident. This church has great unity. Rosemont Church has great unity in this church, and it's not because it just happens. You have to work at unity you have to, to do so. And how do you do that? The body looks to Jesus. What did Jesus do? The Almighty God emptied himself and said, my rights, my authority is not as important as those that I'm come to serve. The, the, the Almighty God, Jesus, who was in the form of God, in his essence, who was God and had all authority, became in the form of a servant. He embodied and at his core served others. How are we unified? How do we stay unified? We look to Jesus and say, that is the mind we should have. Our church, again, I believe has great unity, but is there some area in your life where this needs to be addressed? Is there someone in the church you need to be reconciled with where there isn't the same thought where it says, you know, in verse 2, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose? We have clearly spoken about what our mission here is at the church, passionately bringing people face-to-face -face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. As a body, that is the like, laser focus that we are wanting to do. We want people to come face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ and be changed by it. Are our actions promoting that? Unity in the church is critical. Additionally, 
Second thing, what lesson for us, which is tied to the unity, others are more important than ourselves. Others are more important than ourselves. Look what he says in verse 3. Do nothing. If you've got a Bible, take that and underline, circle, star, whatever. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. I mean, if there's one thing that's tested us over the course of this last year, I believe it's this. Is our default attitude looking for our interests and saying what I want and what makes me happy and what makes me comfortable, or are we thinking of other people and saying, my actions not only impact others, but my actions display what I'm telling people Christ is like. And so is that what we are showing? See, there was no reason Jesus needed to leave heaven. Some people say, well, he, he needed humans. The Trinity did not need us. He was, God was, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect communion for all eternity past. They didn't need anything. And then when they created humanity, and humanity at its first choice, at its first time it could, rebelled and brought sin into the world, God would have been perfectly just to wipe us out and say, forget it. Or to just let us be and let us to our own devices to spiral into sin. But they didn't do that because he loved us. Jesus loved us enough to leave the riches, the palace of heaven, and become a, a spiritual pauper on this earth. And to leave the glory where angels did nothing but glorify and serve him to come down and disguise that glory so humanity could beat him and mock him and nail him to a cross and kill him. And to even today reject the even existence of such a person where he takes his authority, all his authority, and submits it to the Father and says, whatever you want, I will do. So we know what it looks like to follow, that our Lord is not a Lord who rules with an iron fist but rules through submission. And so that he is one who took the guilt of sin when he was the perfect innocent one. That's our example. He voluntarily left glory to submit and to become guilty. He loved others enough to serve them and die for them. And Paul says, have this attitude in you. How do you think your actions impact other people? Do you regard others as more important than yourself or is your default attitude, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Unity in the church is critical. Others are more important than ourselves. And last, our model is Jesus. It's what I've been saying. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes to verse 6, Who? And it talks about Jesus not grabbing on and holding on to equality with God, but emptied himself. Some versions say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the same self-defying, sacrificial mindset that your Savior has. This, this is this little passage that we said where it says, who in verse 6 through 11, it's thought to be an early hymn in the church that they, they would sing this passage or maybe a theological poem that would help teach about our Savior to people. 
and using this hymn of the humiliation of Christ that led to the glorification of Christ, it was meant to give us an example. Not only is he our Savior, but it shows us how he wants his people to live. The Lord of creation became a slave. Almighty God submitted his authority. The perfect Son of God came and became guilty. And when we give ourselves, when we empty ourselves for the glory of God, we'll continue to see unity in our church. Our lives will be marked with sacrifice from others and we will look like our Savior. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and think about this. Do you, do you empty yourself so others can hear the gospel? Do you lay aside your riches and your glory and your authority to reach others? How would God have you respond today? Heavenly Father, we come to you and God, we, we look at Christ and we are so thankful for the sacrifice. Not just the sacrifice on the cross, which was amazing, but when we begin to think what, what the Son of God really did and all that he emptied himself of, It's humbling. It's worthy of praise and glory. And it should transform us into the people you want us to be. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. God, I pray for the unity in Rosemont Baptist Church. And I thank you that it is a precious thing that we have and it seems unique, unfortunately, in the body of Christ. But God, it, like I said, it doesn't happen by accident and it, and it comes from people who are looking to their Savior and living as Him. And so I pray that we would do that, that we would sacrifice ourselves, that we do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, the mind of Christ who came and put, was in the, came in the form of a servant. With humility of mind, treat others more important than ourselves. So God, I pray for, for each of us to have that self-sacrificing mindset. And maybe someone today needs to say, I've been thinking of myself way too much. And not thinking about the hundreds and thousands who live in this town who are living a life without Christ. And this world, this existence isn't for my comfort or my glory. It is for Jesus Christ so others would know him. And Lord, if there's a person who needs to surrender that to you today, I pray they do so. And I pray that each of us would be, that we would be like Christ, that people would see us and see you reflected in us because we have emptied of ourselves allowed the spirit to have full control and we are sacrificially loving others just like our savior God I pray you would teach us this morning that you would move in our hearts and minds that we would be the people you've called us to be God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give.
If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.